Gospel of John, chapter 2. Beginning in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. And they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers of money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. This is the word of the true and living God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just ask that you'd be here in our midst this morning that we'd be gathered in your name, that you would draw out of the text the message that you would have us to hear, Lord, and that we would hear it, Lord, and that it would dwell richly in our hearts, Lord, that we would meditate on these things, that it would bring a spirit of renewal to the church body, Lord, that your bride would be obedient to your will, Lord. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and amen. So the purpose of this section of scripture is to describe the seriousness with which our Lord approached his father's house. We are meant to understand from this section of scripture that Christ honored God the father and hated false religion. As far as context is concerned, we're in the book of John. We've been studying from the book of John for a number of weeks. Every time I've had the opportunity to speak before you, we've been slowly moving our way through the book of John. Book of John, the purpose, as we've discussed a number of times, is to illustrate the divinity of our Lord. It says in John chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written that she might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. We studied the first chapter of the book of John. It says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. And then moving forward, it says, of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him the son of God. This would have been catastrophic for the Jews at the time to hear that a man declared himself the son of God. But he is the son of God. It's right for him to declare himself the son of God. Then we've moved onward. We've read about 
the, the first few disciples who joined him, Philip, Andrew, Nathaniel. We've read about the wedding at Cana. We could have spent a lot more time on the wedding. There are a few remarks we should cover just to close the loop on this. Uh, last time we were very focused on the Lord's miraculous turning of the water into wine and how he takes our obedience and he it's through divine providence, divine grace that he takes the things that we do and he makes them the source of joy, good things. So after the wedding or at the wedding, <clears throat> some of you, someone asked, they said, well, why is this important? Like, why is it at a wedding? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, marriage is the oldest institution in the Bible. It was created in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. Man uh, shall leave his mother and father and be cleaved unto a wife. And at the time, we think we take marriage very seriously. We don't take marriage or weddings, certainly, nearly as seriously as the ancient Jews would have taken weddings. I mentioned that the father, the groom, would have been storing up wine for years for this particular occasion. There were rabbinic laws that would have fined, potentially, the family of the groom for running out of wine in such a situation. They, the wedding would have been three to seven days in duration, consummated at the end. So they might have called off the wedding in the case of running out of wine. We probably have a hard time identifying with the social ramifications of such a thing because we live in an individualistic culture that doesn't isn't predicated on shame or honor, but they lived in a shame and honor culture. It would have been the end of this family's reputation in a, the, the only community that they would ever have. There are no, not any alternatives for this family. So what Christ was doing by turning the water into wine was miraculous and it saved a party But bigger than that, it saved a young couple that was getting married and their lives would have been irreparably damaged by this social catastrophe. And it's relevant to our current time. I think it should be instructive as far as how we view the sacrament of marriage, weddings, that if, if... If Christ was going to weddings and spending days there, and it was where he saw fit to have his first miracle, perhaps we should take the institution as seriously as we possibly can, and not just the institution of marriage itself, but the wedding that uh, initiates it. And so moving on, we find ourselves and the Lord and his disciples in Capernaum. If you've been attending Bible study on Wednesdays, you'll remember in the book of Mark, there are many, many miracles done in Capernaum. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there many days. Capernaum is called elsewhere in scripture, his city. He spent so much time in Capernaum that he's often, at the time, he was identified almost as a resident of that city. He performed so many miracles in Capernaum that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23, he's speaking to Capernaum and he says, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, 
shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. He's saying that Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was burned to the ground in the Old Testament, if Sodom and Gomorrah had the benefit of all the mighty works, the miracles that our Lord performed, that it still would be standing to this day. But Capernaum's going to be sent to hell because despite all the miracles, they still found reason to disbelieve. He travels with his mother. He travels with his brethren uh, and his disciples. So Gil says that the brethren are specifically James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Some of the three of these will become disciples later on. The disciples at the time are Simon, Philip, Andrew, and Nathaniel. They're all going to Jerusalem for the Passover. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So in the course of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry, he attended four Passovers, this being the first. Two more are explicitly referenced in the book of John. A fourth one uh, might be alluded to in chapter 5. It says a feast day that took them to Jerusalem. To understand this passage and the significance of this passage, we need to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16. This is verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 6. And stop briefly. Observe the month of Abib. This is the first verse of chapter 16 of Deuteronomy. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover under the Lord thy God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. So Jews would select the lamb on the 10th of the month. And they would celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the month of It's also called Nisan. Which is, this is a, for us, this would be the full moon at the end of March or the beginning of April, which is when we celebrate Easter. Thou shalt therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to place his name there. Thou shalt eat no unleavened, no leavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread, therewith even the bread of affliction. For thou camest forth out of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. This is very clear. They are to remember being brought forth out of Egypt by eating unleavened bread, which is to say flat bread, right? Like uh, pita bread, for example. There shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in all thy coast seven days. Neither shall there be anything of the flesh which thou sacrifice the first day at even. Remain all night until the morning. Thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God has given thee, but at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name in, there thou shalt sacrifice the Passover even at the going down of the sun, at the season which thou camest forth out of Egypt. So you have a sense of what their practice of the Passover might have been like. In the Old Testament, in these times, the yeast would have represented to them sin. So they spent seven days cleaning their house of yeast, of any kind of yeast that might be there. It's a purification ritual. It is a time of cleaning out all the sin. We're coming up on Easter. 
This is really important to be thinking about for us today, right? They're cleaning out their homes of all the yeast. Yeast is a mom makes bread. It's like a little, it's a powder, uh, but it's a living, it's a living like fungus, I guess. (laughs) And, and you put it in uh, flour to make it rise. They're eating beef early in the week, lamb to consummate the, uh, the, the Passover. And at the time of our Lord, Jerusalem would have normally hosted a few hundred thousand people as permanent residents. The Passover would have expanded that number to nearly a million people in Jerusalem. There would not have been a vacancy at any inn. There would not have been an empty room. They would have turned every room in the whole city that had any other purpose into a room for people coming to visit Jerusalem. And we learn from the reformers in the Geneva Bible that our Lord be being made subject to the law for us, he went and did the Passover perfectly every year of his life, and he satisfies the law of the Passover, which is why we no longer celebrate it as Passover, but we celebrate Easter, which is the resurrection of our Lord, which happened at the fourth and final Passover in the book of John. Okay. And we're back in John chapter 2, verse 14. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. So this would have been in the court of the Gentiles, which would have been the outer courtyard of the temple of Jerusalem. It had been converted this time into a marketplace where they are selling animals and they're changing money. And they're, they're approving animals for the sacrifice. They're changing money because there would have been a temple tax. Any adult man over the age of 20 would have had to pay a temple tax. People are traveling from all over the ancient world. They're all using different currencies and denominations. You have to be able to change money into the local currency either to buy the sacrificial animals or to pay your temple tax. The priests wouldn't accept an animal if it had any blemish. What's more, the priests are allowing and probably profiting off of this marketplace that's happening in the temple. Okay? So, if you... Believe man is depraved and you have a a reasonable expectation of human behavior, it's probably not that much of a stretch to say that the the priests probably would not have been accepting sacrifices from outside the temple at all because they would have been losing out on the profit made from the animals sold in the court, in the outer court. Now, this sounds very familiar because if you're familiar with the Roman Catholic system of indulgences in the Middle Ages, they would have sent priests around collecting money in exchange for the covering of sins. We know because we worship the true and living God and we read his word and we understand that salvation is by grace alone, that you can't buy your way out of sin. There's no work that a human being can do on his own power that will save him from sin. And so for hundreds of years, the Roman Catholic Church is practicing an abomination to God and a false gospel, and they are taking advantage of people's religious belief in order to profit. And then in 1517, Martin Luther gets fed up with it, and he goes and he nails 95 theses on the door of the church and on, on the day before All Saints Day. And that's the beginning of the Reformation. And then 10 years later, in 1527, you have the sack of Rome, where a bunch of the neighboring countries literally go and, sat and, and rob and pillage Rome. And it's because the Lord will not suffer his name to be dishonored in this way for very long. 
And we learn from that historical context that this is a recurring event. It is normal in the course of history for men to fall away from true religion and to start practicing this dishonorable, deplorable practice of taking advantage of God's people for money, for filthy lucre. And to make his house, his father's house, a house of merchandise, a marketplace. Verse 15, and when he had made a scourge of small small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen and poured out the, the changers' money and overthrew the tables. He used a whip rather than a staff. He used a whip rather than a staff because it would have been, a Jewish law said you can't bring a staff into the temple. So he's following the Jewish law perfectly. He won't bring a staff into the, into the temple. He uses a whip instead of a staff. He drives them all out. This is a kind of violence. He's compelling action, but it's a violence without vice. It's a violence without viciousness. Okay? He's using force, but he's not harming anyone in, in, a, in a serious way. And so we learn a sense of moderation, that there is a way of using force to honor God that is not over the top. And what's more is, parents, you probably you know this, he's not reacting in a disciplinary way. He's not walking into the church and being shocked and dismayed and angry and then immediately beating people. He is sitting down and he's making a whip. You can't make a whip with, like on accident, right? You can't make an, a, a whip in like furious anger. It's a, it's a craft. So he is intentionally and deliberately with forethought sitting down, making a whip, and then driving them out. Okay, this is the way that our Lord cleansed the temple. And he also drives out all the animals, which we're going to get to. So, and he says unto them that sold doves, take these things hence and make not my father's house a house of merchandise. So notice that he doesn't release the doves, right? Like this is not an animal rights activist. In fact, he apparently... He cares more about the property rights than the animal rights, right? Because he is saying, hey, take these doves. I'm not going to release them and, and, and you're going to lose your property. You're going to take these things and you're going to remove them from the house of God. Again, it's a very moderated amount of force that he's exercising through his valid authority as the son of God and the son of the father who is the owner of the house, right? It's his house. Take the doves and go, take their cages and go, get all this stuff out of my father's house, you dishonor. We should remember that these men were making money. They're making money, taking advantage of the poor. They're leveraging the faith of the poor to profit. And we should remember with fear and trembling the wrath of our Lord. The judgment comes upon all those that take advantage of the simple. In Jeremiah 6, verses 18 through 20 says, Therefore hear, ye nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. To what purpose cometh there to me incense from Sheba, and the sweet, to, to what purpose cometh to me incense from Sheba, and the sweet cane from a far country. Why are you bringing these sacrifices? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. This is just like Cain and Abel. Cain gave a sacrifice that was not acceptable unto the Lord. You might think you're giving a sacrifice that's acceptable unto the Lord, but if it doesn't please God, you're doing it 
either it's the wrong sacrifice, the wrong spirit. But for some reason, the sacrifices are not pleasing to God. And we see here, I mean, they, it's dishonoring to our Lord to, to falsify the gospel. Malachi 3, 1 says, and this is, this is a sort of prophecy. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek, that's our Lord, shall suddenly come to his temple. This is Malachi, 400 years before our Lord. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, the priestly cast, and purge them as gold and as silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord. Only after the purification, only after the refiner's fire, which is our Lord, will the sacrifices be satisfying to God, pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. And finally, we get to verse 17. This is the key verse. The disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house shall eat, has eaten me up. This is pulled out of Psalm 69, verse 9. For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. The disciples are singing these psalms. They remember, they've got it deeply ingrained in them. The zeal of thy house has eaten me up. And so when they see our Lord driving them out of the temple, they remember what the psalm said, what the song says, and they recognize that perfect practice of religion in our Lord. And they recognize that he is Lord. The zeal, what is zeal? Righteous indignation, passion. The most angry our Lord has ever gotten is here at the dishonor shown by those who mistreated his father's house. He actually does it again just before the passion in the final Passover. You can go read about that in Matthew. And it's even, he's actually even angrier at that point because they're doing it again a few years later. Like they just keep doing it and they do not learn. And then he tears the whole temple down. (laughs) The zeal serves as an example for us all. They called Capernaum his city, But our Lord didn't feel any particular, he didn't express any particular affection or reverence for Capernaum. But the temple, the temple is his father's house. The temple is his father's house and he cleanses it. He says in Matthew 21, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. Even stronger language than here in John because it's, again, it's happening later. This happens twice. He cleanses the temple twice to demonstrate the purpose of his ministry, which is to... Purification of religion. It's a purification of religion. This might, you know, as primitive Baptists, we don't really look too much at church history, but there was an entire reformation that took place in the 1500s where the doctrine of the church was, was purified. And what is reformation? Reformation is a purification of doctrine. What is our Lord doing here? He's correcting the doctrine of the, of the old false religion. You know, so some of us have probably heard in the news There's a revival happening right now in Asbury, Kentucky. A Wesleyan Arminian University in the middle of Kentucky has been worshiping nonstop for 12 days. They have a Wednesday morning worship in chapel, and they were just so lit up that they kept kept going for 12 days. That's what it... Now, you could say, oh, well, you know, it might be a false revival. Maybe they're not preaching the right gospel. Maybe the people there are sinners. 
I'm sure, I'm sure, I promise you. I don't know that much for sure, but I guarantee you the people in that church house are all sinners. Hundreds, if not thousands of students are gathering. This is spread to other universities, two or three other universities, churches in the area. Y'all are hearing about it. And yet, when I read that our Lord cleansed the temple, you know, I'm wondering, does one come first? Does one, does one affect the other? These are the questions that we have to be asking ourselves. You know, we pray here from time to time for a revival. Maybe we should be praying every week for a revival. What is a revival? Revival is not really in the Bible. We'll talk a little bit about it. And I'm sorry, John, I probably am going over this time. But, you know, revival, the word revival is not specifically in the Bible. But Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He said, the revival is when the normal course of worship, the normal course of church activities become especially imbued with the Holy Spirit. That in one day of revival, you might get as much work done preaching the gospel as you would have gotten done in a whole year past. And so that's what we're praying for. We're not praying for something, some like fundamental change. We're not going to change the form of worship. We're not going to change the hymns we sing. We're not going to change the gospel. But we need to be praying that the Holy Spirit sits upon this worship that we get, that we revive the dead seasons, that the Lord revives the dead seasons in revival. And so we have to be asking ourselves, are we Doing what Paul says somehow. Are we continuing in sin? Are we resting on our laurels? Are we, are we, not, are we purifying the temple? Are we purifying his house? Are we following in the steps of our Lord and purifying his house? Are we coming here with zeal, with a righteous indignation at everything that dishonors our Lord? So we have to be searching the scripture to find these commandments. We have to be examining ourselves to understand where we're still dead inside. We have to be praying for revival every day. I listened to the sermon that started that revival at Asbury. Okay, again, it's like a Wesleyan Arminian church. They don't believe the gospel the way we believe the gospel. But he couldn't even help but say, the, if, if the whole sermon was on love, and I'm reminded of Ben's great sermon on love a few weeks ago. And, and he couldn't even help but say, you know, it's not really love if it's not love in Christ. They intuitively understand that all these things are gifts of God. Their theology is bad, but if we had to have perfect theology to be saved, we would all go to hell. And so zeal is the fervent expression of love. Zeal is the consumption of one's whole being with love. And where else do we see this kind of love? We see it, where do we, where do we see it from our Lord? We see it on the cross, where he's consumed by love. What was he doing on the cross? He was suffering punishment for our sins. He was ex- accepting the discipline that ought to have, that we have earned, that ought to be on us. And in doing so, he's purifying us. He's purifying the temple, the body of Christ. In Romans 15, again, referencing Psalm 69, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Our reproach falls on him. One more story and one more scripture and then I'll wrap it up. So eight years ago, eight years ago this month in Libya, a bunch of radical Islamic terrorists kidnapped 
20 uh, Coptic Egyptian Christians and one man from Ghana named Matthew. And then on TV, they beheaded the 20 and the 21st, the man from Ghana, they said, do you reject our Lord? And he said, their God is my God. And they beheaded him too. And so my question to you, brothers and sisters, is if you look at your heart and ask yourself, does the love you have for one another and the zeal you have for your father's house inspire that kind of devotion from an unbeliever in his last moments? Because if it doesn't, we need to be praying for that kind of faith. I'll close with the scripture from Joel. It shall come to pass. This is Joel chapter two, verses 28 through 32. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophecy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be delivered as the Lord has said and in the remnant who the Lord shall call. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us together this morning, Lord. We ask that your words dwell within us, Lord, that the speaker be forgotten, but your word be remembered, Lord, that we be revived by your word, Lord, that the spirit dwell richly within us, within the congregation, that the lands and the nations be lit up with a fervent zeal, Lord, that they repent from their sins, that they come before you, Lord, and they worship in truth and in spirit, Lord. And we just beg that wherever we are missing the mark, Lord, that we seek to purify your temple, Lord, that we seek to honor your father's house, that we seek true religion undefiled, Lord. And Lord, we just ask that it all be driven by the Holy Spirit, Lord, that it be done in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you be glorified in all this, Lord, and we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I would like to concentrate primarily on the beginning of John chapter 11. Last time I spoke alongside Danny, we had also shared sections of John. I was in 10 and he was in 1. And I think it no coincidence that we came with similar thoughts, but completely different portions of those thoughts. I hope that by the end of this you can see an interweaving by a hand far greater than ours. My original thought was to refer to this message as God's plan for his glory, your place, and his power. I don't know that I'll get to all that. But the passage that Danny was speaking out of was sandwiched between two statements by John that he gave at the end of the wedding in Cana of Galilee. It said, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Remember that. That was the end of that passage. The next passage that happened with Jesus there, and I hope I'm not stealing your thunder from next time you come together and finish John chapter 2. But it said that 
at the end of the zeal of Jesus in verse 22. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Are you sensing a pattern? I will not be able to go through uh, even a portion of John chapter 11 this morning. And that's largely because of just how much happens. But at the end of the primary miracle of this section, it says that many of the things, and I'm sorry, then many of the Jews which came to Mary and seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. For you see, Jesus himself had declared in between these two passages uh, in John chapter 6 that this is the work of God. And he had already declared himself the son of God by John chapter 11. This is the work of God that you believe on his name. You see, God could have done any kind of miracle, but he did the best kind of miracle, the one that would benefit the lives of the people involved. For you see, he could have turned water into wine at any time, at any place, but he did it in such a way that benefited the couple there, as Danny was saying. He could have healed and raised from the dead many people in many places, but he did it in the times and places that were most profitable. He could have proved he was the son of God the way he's going to prove it at the end, as by lightning, which stretches from the east to the west in the sky so that no man can say he doesn't see it, and prove that he had the power of God. But he did it, healing people. He healed a woman who was bent over for decades. And they were able to stand up and show the power of God, but also showed mercy. The same at that wedding. But here, he does the same thing. And I want you to remember, beloved, that these people suffered all that time for the glory of God. That I would like to be the primary thrust this morning, that you might concentrate on the glory of God in such times as these. Not such times as these uh, from a large-scale view only, Although that's important, it's not the most important thing for you in your life. We're called to pray for those in power that we might live peaceable lives. That you might be able to concentrate primarily on your life. That you might love the people around you. That you might worship God where you are and do whatever you do with all your mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving God with that and loving your neighbor likewise. But sadly, we live in a time when the news of the world comes very quickly to our doorstep. And we hear about every earthquake and war and famine and sickness and disease across the earth. And it moves us, surely. But these things we must trust to the hand of God. But I say not just suffering globally, but also intimately in our lives. Remember all of those miracles people had to go through suffering to prove the glory of God. That man who spent his entire life as a cripple by the pool of Bethesda, who could not even so much as roll himself in when the pool was moved, suffered his entire life so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That he might be healed in the right time and season so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God. So likewise begins John chapter 11. I'll read the first six verses first. It says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. The word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we desire in this place for your name to be made famous, that here in this place and in our hearts we might be inflamed to see the glory of your name be spread across the whole earth. Now, Lord, we desire that to be even here and now in this place. 
that we might love you in your name above all else, and that your glory might be first and preeminent above all of our concerns and all of our loves. In Jesus' name, amen. It says here, a certain man was sick named Lazarus. This man is not mentioned in any other gospel. I have theories about that. They aren't necessarily true. But John was written undoubtedly long after the other gospels. There's plenty of evidences both within and without. If I can get to some of the ones that are even in this passage, I'll be happy to share them with you. And maybe the next time we're together, we can do that. But John was written long after. By the end of this passage, Lazarus will be a hunted man. Hunted and hated even as much as or more than Jesus. Because his very life would be evidence of Jesus being the son of God. And that by itself is a picture of what it's like to be a Christian on the earth. But Lazarus would become hated and hunted. As we'll see also in this passage, Lazarus was somewhat famous. Bethany was about two miles or so from Jerusalem. And throughout the course of the passages of this event, you're going to find out that many Jews came from the city to go and what we would call today sit Shiva with the family after the sad events had happened. So Lazarus was known, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say far and wide, but certainly into the great city of Jerusalem. And he was living, as it says, in a town of Bethany. It says the town of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Well, when we read the scriptures, remember that these are people like us. That these lives were real, that they were lived, and that they died on this earth. And that they were loved of God. I'll get to that in just a moment. But here it says of Mary that she was the one who anointed the Lord with ointment. That's actually going to be the very next chapter. But John is writing chronologically, but he knows that you know these things. He's writing these things knowing because this event of Mary's would have become very famous after the resurrection of our Lord. Jesus himself said that she did this unto his burial. But again, it says Mary and her sister, Martha. If opportunity comes, I'd like to give a little grace to Martha because there's a very famous passage where Martha was rebuked by our Lord for her busyness and Mary was praised for her love of Jesus. But in this passage, you're going to see the opposite happen where Mary it was who ran to Jesus. And I'm sorry, where Martha it was who ran to Jesus and Mary it was who was mad and upset with what had happened. But again, I say these things that you might have exactly as much fulfillment as the Lord gives to us when he gives these passages showing to us that these people were real and that they lived as you do now in this day. And again, it says that their brother Lazarus was sick. And for this cause, it says, therefore, his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now, we say this before this very time of preaching this morning. We we took time to give prayer requests. And I pray that you would, for one another, send messages, as these sisters did, unto Jesus, with your concerns, with your cares, that you might cast all your cares upon him. For they indeed did care for this one that they loved. And there are some here who currently care for people that they love. But the first thing we all should do for the people that we know and love is send a messenger unto Jesus. Whether that be by the Holy Ghost working in your heart with groanings that can't be uttered or with words that are said or with sharing and leaning on those around you. As we do here this morning as an example, but as we most intimately do in our personal relationships, sharing those things which bother us or doing the opposite, being there, bearing the burden of one another. And then delivering them on your own also to Jesus. The one person who can, if he so desires, heal all the cares and concerns of the world. There's one thing you should recognize about the gospel is that if God wanted to end all sickness today, he would. He would. He has his own purposes. And as you grow in wisdom, you'll begin to see them more and more unfold. Why it is that God is right. Why it's right that all men who, are, uh, who were born more than 120 years ago are dead, save three. 
why it would be that even now to this day, we see people we know and love aging, fading, dying. Or we see young ones taken long before what seems to be their time. But God would have us bear the burden of that suffering. Because if you think you suffer for your loved ones, God, the more. Again, that's something that we will see later on in this passage, but we won't necessarily get to this morning. But beloved, that was only the first part of that verse. The second one is the one that I would like you to really think about. It says, they said to him, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When you pray to God, the best way to pray to him is in his language. Praying in a way that includes the, things that, the ways that he looks at the world. Not just the ways of our current time that are going to come and go and be gone forever. But beloved, if you are loved, remind him of that. If you are loved, remind yourself of that. When you look at yourself in the morning as you prepare for your day, remember that you're looking at someone whom the Lord loves. He whom thou lovest is sick. Now, if you think those words didn't affect Jesus, you may not know the rest of this passage, but surely they did. For Jesus, we call him the lover of our souls. He loves us. There's been a bit of a theme this morning of revival. The the song we sang said, all must come to desolation unless thou return again. Have you considered that sometimes that is in the plan of God? Remember that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, had parents that never saw him have children. That never saw Jesus come back. That Anna, the prophetess, who got to hold him and prophesy about him in the temple, she had a husband who died many years before, who never saw Jesus come back, but saw those hundreds of years of slavery to the Romans that the Jews had been under. Many generations of those who waited for Jesus never saw him come. And there are times when Jesus does not come back. There are times that Jesus does not restore a generation. Remember that there were hundreds of years that the Jews were in slavery to the Egyptians before the generation came when they finally cried out to him with a whole heart, praying that he would save them from where they were. You can imagine them crying out in the desert, Lord, the people that you love, that you brought up from nothing, is in slavery. And then he, in his own sovereign will, elected to free them. But hear Jesus' response, for he did respond. And you must listen to that still small voice, because he does respond. He speaks clearly, and from his living word, even to this very day. It says, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. This sickness is not unto death, Jesus says. Is Jesus a liar? We must see. But he says, the most important thing here is, but for the glory of God. Lazarus was sick. You imagine what what may have happened very commonly in this time. Even uh, Gil had said that this may very well have been a fever that even in Gil's time was common in the Middle East to strike a man suddenly and to take him down and to kill him. And not that that necessarily is a sickness, but there's a good chance of it. So just imagine he's taken in a fever that may have even had his mind not thinking straight anymore. Imagine him freezing cold and yet sweating hot, suffering in sickness where he was, and he did that for the glory of God. Last time I was here, I was talking about how in uh, Luke and, of course, also in Matthew and other places, how Jesus had taught that blessed are you who are made poor for the gospel's sake, for you shall be rich. 
And I gave numerous examples on how you could be made poor, whether it be by giving up opportunities to work on Sunday in small and simple ways, or there are greater ways along the way. But beloved, our chief desire in this world is what Jesus said here. For the glory of God. That is the meaning of everything. It is the point and purpose of all things that are, or ever have been, or ever shall be. For the glory of God. The darkness sits in waiting to be able to be filled with God's light so that you might be able to see how glorious and good God is. Indeed, this sickness came upon Lazarus for the glory of God. It was within God's will and purpose. Let's remember that as we suffer, as we see things small and great, as we see the people that we know and love suffering dearly, or as we see the greater movements of our time, these dark days when the confusion that is on all people is so thick and so great they can't see their nose in front of them. And that we have to live in a time when we see our neighbors treating their children in ways that are simply ungodly and teaching ideas and things that are counter to God and against him. How the further purpose and pursuit of pleasure and covetousness, all manner of men seem to be being led away. And that for a time, this evil may be allowed to persist for God's purpose in that when it gets so bad and so dark that it seems irredeemable by any reasonable measure, any good thing that can come of it must be for the glory of God. And he goes on, he says that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now this is a um, series of steps that Jesus keeps talking about. And he goes on when he prays to the Father about you and for you specifically and for his disciples and for all of his people. He makes out this, this inseparable chain of people. I and the Father are one. And then he says we are one with him. The obedience of Jesus makes it so that first the glory of God is revealed. Second, that God glorifies him with that same glory wherewith Jesus is glorified. And then he says that we are one with him. Beloved, we're called not to be fools and to be concerned with our own pride, our own knowledge, even knowledge of the scriptures as the Pharisees got carried away with, but knowledge that God loves us. Knowledge that we get to see his wisdom and that we get to play one, some small part in his glorification. And in so doing, we get to be glorified like unto the angels who sing in the very halls of heaven, holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. May we be able to also glorify him likewise, that he might glorify us, that we might rightly desire to be raised up with him in heaven. For there is a right degree of of elevation that we should desire, and that is to be with him. And if you are with him, if you are made like him, you should, by necessity, be praised. But don't be like evil Herod, who desired only the praise to be kept for himself, but then you give it back to him. For you see, beloved, that whether it be in suffering, or whether it be in being raised up in power or other purposes, the chief goal of your life is to glorify God in all that you do. So likewise, Lazarus here being laid down is made to glorify God. So that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Remember, Jesus says he, again and again in this gospel that he does nothing of himself. There's a few things that repeat over and over. He says, I speak nothing of myself, but only those words which the Father sent me. And again and again, after every miracle or every teaching or every major event, it says that, and so the disciples or the people that were there believed on God, or they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. These two primary themes happen again and again. He does it through these miracles. But, beloved, the miracles weren't the point. The point was that a people who were against God, who were enemies of God, who were dead in sin, who were blind, could not just see him, but acknowledge him, but believe on him, and then be witnesses to the world of a God who made all light, the Father of light, the God who is love and loves dearly and tenderly all of your sufferings. 
even though he caused them. Though he slay me, as Job said, yet will I trust him. Job, I don't think, had an opportunity to really live this out the way that Lazarus did. Or maybe live this out is the wrong way to say it, isn't it? But in all this desire of glorification, in all this sickness that fell upon his friends, we see this repeated, not just by the men who came praying to Jesus and pursuing him, but says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Beloved, there will come a day when there is no sorrow. In heaven it says there's no sorrow there and every tear shall be wiped from every eye. The sting and the pain that comes of death of ourselves or the death of our loved ones or the sickness along the way shall all be gone. But we're not there yet. We have that hope and rightly so. And Martha is even going to testify of this later on in this passage, but we don't have that hope now. We have sorrow. But you do not have any sorrow that God is not acquainted with. It says of him, Jesus, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And why was he that? Why would God suffer? Why would God go through pain? God, who never sinned ever, never did anything that was worthy of receiving any kind of trouble back. God, who is good and wise and great and holy, 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 and should have never received anything back save the glorification of him. We should be always singing, may we keep power and glory and blessings to him. And yet, he suffers. He never did anything to deserve to suffer. But why should he suffer? Because he loved Martha and Mary, Lazarus, me, and you. If you think you suffer, I assure you, God suffers more. For he understands the situation far more than you can. Just as if you think you know your sin, I assure you, he knows more. This is why we're called to say things like, cleanse thou me of secret faults. But every sin causes suffering that God suffers. His purpose of his suffering is so that he might be glorified, but it's also so that he might have his beloved that you might love him and know him more than you ever could have were it not for the suffering you have to go through here below. What was Jesus' response here? In action. He says, when he had heard therefore that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now herein is a mystery. And you know the end of this passage, and I'll implore you to read it maybe later on today or later this week as you consider these things as you go from this place. But Jesus didn't heal him. Already in the Gospel of John, Jesus has told a man, go, he's healed. Far away, a great distance. Where he is right here, he's, he's where, uh, G, uh, where um, John was baptizing, away across the other side of Jordan, probably something in the neighborhood of 15 or so miles from the place in Bethany, uh, by my limited uh, studies. They were two miles from Jerusalem. This was a distance that he would have had to start walking immediately if he was going to get there in any reasonable time to be of service. But what did he do? Nothing. He stayed there. Have you ever had your prayers unanswered? Ever seem like someone you know is suffering without cause? Ever have a need, whether it be financial, emotional, spiritual, that there was no gift given? There is a reason why Jesus says that if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you say to move this mountain, it will. Because if you understand God and you know him, then your knowledge will line all your desires up with his. And then you'll never desire to move a mountain just for the sake of personal pleasure or power. Your only desire will be that if there is a reason that God could be glorified by that action, undoubtedly and undeniably, then you would desire that to be so. And so it would. 
for your faith would align your will with his, your will by which you could not believe in him, as it says in the beginning of John. This is why what Jesus says when he says that is so stark, and his actions here seem much more stark. He does not go to save them. And anyone who said that it was wrong of him not to go and to save them would themselves be wrong. Would be more like Satan when he was trying to tempt Jesus, when he said, well, you have a problem. Why don't you just solve the problem right now? No, because the answer doesn't come in our hour of need. God has things come in his time. As I gave the example of the Israelites in Egypt, who for 400 years suffered until the time was right, here, Lazarus would go on and die. And everyone he knew and loved would care about him. Beloved, have you ever had to die for Jesus? Twice? For that's what Lazarus would have to go through. Unless he was one of those who was raised up in that mysterious passage at the end of Matthew, he had to go through the veil, not once, but twice. But know this, that he was never, ever out of the sight of God. He was never, ever out of the presence of God. And by the end of this gospel and others, he would say that Jesus would be given the keys of death and hell. He ruled not over life, but death. Not over light only, but even darkness. And so that no man would pass through the veil without his presence. No man could go through that door without his being there to open it, to pass through. So that though Lazarus had to suffer in a way that I don't know that many other men ever did, dying twice. In so doing, to this very day, you might understand the love of God for his people, but the love of God for his glory, which is right. And if you don't see that, if you don't desire it above all else, beloved, your heart is not in line with our Heavenly Father, who has given you everything you have and everything you know. So I pray that you desire his glory, that you might see his sensitive heart for his people, even when he causes us to suffer. You might see that maybe a time may come, even now, when all does come to desolation, because he has not yet returned again. But beloved, know that whether it be a day that you get to see, or our children get to see, or their children's children's children, or so on, through the ages of time, that God will continue to revive us. Trust him to come and revive us in his time, in the time that's right. And beloved, may that be your singular desire. For in such revival, as Danny described, as we might hope for, we don't just want for God uh, to be uh, suddenly making things easier for us by making the culture more Christian. But we want to see a time when God's glory is the most important thing for all men. That's what he was talking about when he told us to pray to our Heavenly Father. That his name might be famed abroad. That it might be first. That was in the prayer before talking about food, before talking about temptation or trouble or forgiveness of sins. That he might speak his name and that the whole earth might bow before him. Beloved, if that is not your first desire, I implore you to pray. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. That you might see the world as God does. Thank you for your good attention.